What is going on, ladies and gentlemen? Welcome back to the High Bar Podcast. This is episode 19. Today, I am joined by my fellow coaches and good friends, Aiden Rader and Jaron Yamane. And today's podcast episode, we are going to talk about our trip to Hawaii, which was long overdue, and discuss a little bit of the seminar, discuss really my and Aiden's first experience in Hawaii, and just what it was like being in, in such a wonderful lifting community. For those of you who don't know, um, you know, the Hawaii lifting community, I think, is pretty notorious for having a, a very strong cohesion and, and seeing what was what was happening at, at Jaron's gym, both at the meet and, you know, during the course of the week leading up to the seminar was was pretty awesome. But we'll get into it. How are you boys doing today? Good, man. Doing good. Doing good. Doing good. Aiden, Aiden's still catching up on sleep over here from the... Uh... <laughs> I'm all right. We'll put it at that. The, the oh, it's, like, it's like 3 p.m. for you. <laughs> yeah, I I don't know. My body's just been uh, requiring, uh, you know, 12 hours sleep days for me. The two-week Hawaii jet lag. Oh, man, yeah. it's all good. It's all good. It's funny because with uh, with – it's usually – I would say it's usually when we get on these calls, it's Jaron looking like he's just rolled out of bed. But yep. you guys can't see him right now, but his hair is all – Puffed up, very voluminous, <laughs> looking looking mighty handsome on the camera right now. Eventually, we'll have to get get some video for you guys here and uh, and and throw it up on on YouTube or whatever other platform. But yeah, for now, it's Aiden and myself are going to have to just enjoy Jaron's handsomeness, and you guys will all be deprived. So <laughs> it is what it is. Uh, well, um, how did you guys? I mean, yeah, to get the the podcast started, man. How did you guys like Hawaii? How did you guys like being here? Uh, I mean, I loved it uh, in, in terms of uh, just, I'd say, like, the community you guys have there. Like, I just enjoyed it the entire time. Like, I, I'm, I'm genuinely, like, missing it. Just uh, having, I don't know, just, like, as soon as, as soon as I arrived, everyone just started treating me like family. And, and like, I was a friend that I, everyone had known for, like, years. Um, physically, uh, my body didn't like it. But, um Yeah. I definitely appreciated the community you guys have. Oh, dude, I loved it. I mean, so so for everyone listening, we uh, we hosted a seminar uh, May seventh and May eighth, I believe, were the dates. And the week prior, I was there for the Ukiyo Grand Prix. And I mean, I can I can echo everything that Aiden just said. I mean, it's it's really special. I think when you have like strong, um, I guess like cultural cohesion. Um, you know, just like it's, it's definitely a different, a completely different atmosphere when you walk into Ukiyo and you see that everyone is like just willing to help everybody because they feel like family with everybody. They feel an obligation to everyone and an obligation to the gym. Um, you know, when I was getting there for the Grand Prix, Jaron, for those of you listening, don't might, might not know. You might know, like the man is a workhorse. Like he just, you know, works tirelessly to set everything up for for the gym, for the competitions, and it's a lot that he puts on his plate. And you know, while he is taking on a ton of stuff, it it seems like everybody, even if they don't have any real like quote unquote incentive to help out everyone wants to help out. You know, there was, you know, just groups of people like 
taping down the the wires connecting the speakers and the microphones, people setting up the curtains, people moving the racks, people vacuuming, people picking up garbage. Like yep. everyone feels a lot of pride, I think, in the gym and, and what they've cultivated there. And like it it shows in just your training sessions day to day. Like, you know, I have a I have a pretty good group of friends here in Miami and that I train with, but if you didn't know somebody just walking into a gym, like you probably would just kind of mind your own business and, and, you know, just go about your training. If you needed to lift off, maybe you'd ask a person, maybe you wouldn't, but at Ukiyo, it's like you walk in and it's like, all right, like you're, it's like walking into home. You're like, Hey, like, what can I, you know, what are you training today? Can I help you kind of thing? And it's like, Oh, you have a top set, like word, like everyone's going to get really excited for you today. And it's, uh, it's it's very refreshing because in the experiences that I've had with being almost like too friendly with gym partners, there's like a lot of like screwing around, but I didn't really get that feeling when I was at Ukiyo. It's just like, like everyone goes there and probably spends more of their day there than, you know, you should if you have other stuff going on in your life. But it, if people want to be productive, they're productive and everyone's like supportive of that. It didn't ever feel like, oh, you know, everyone's super, super friendly. So you're just gonna, you know, just dick around or, or not get stuff done. Like the people who want to get stuff done work. And it's, and it was just, I loved it. You know, I, I definitely wish that I could have gotten to, you know, go to more beaches or see more nature, but I wasn't, uh, I wasn't going there for, you know, a vacation. So there was a lot of work that needed to be done and getting the seminar stuff planned and, um, just programming in general. So, there will be there will be a return trip for sure. Definitely yeah. a return trip. Yeah. We're thinking January, bro. Fingers fingers crossed uh for you guys coming back in January, but um yeah, definitely kind of just touching bases on something that you mentioned earlier with like when we run the meets. Um I mean, yes, I'm the meet director, you know, and yes, I'm the state chair, so you know, it's a lot of the responsibilities do fall on me, but there's no literally no way that I could do this if it was just me, you know, um, there's so many people in our gym who give so much in terms of their time, their effort, their dedication, and they're truly like their passion to, to making sure that we're providing, um, a high quality product for the lifters and for everyone coming and everyone in attendance. Um, it's, it's crazy, man, because literally like the week of the meet, I mean, people, people can read my energy. I'm like fucking, I'm all over the place, man. I'm pacing and, you know, I, there's just so much that I, that I got to do, but there's people who come in like members, friends, previous members who, you know, sometimes don't even power lift anymore, but they just come to help out and they'll come into the gym and come to Ukiyo and they'll just ask me like, what can I do? Like, how can, how can I help you? Like, they'll just come in after work and they're like, Hey man, I got an hour today, you know? Sorry, I can't stay the whole day, but like I got an hour, and I'm like, "What? You, what? you don't have to apologize, man. You're helping out, and you're you're volunteering. It's it's so amazing, man. So people would just trickle in like that, and they're like, whatever they can do to help out. Like, I'm so so grateful to have this community and this amazing group of people at Ukiyo who are just so so down for it and so yeah. down for the community, you know. And this is something that was built. Some, you know, some of these relationships were built over years, but some of them also were just members that we just had joined like a year ago, or some of them were members that they just joined like a couple months ago. Yeah. But I think what's something that's really special to us is when a lot of people see that 
meets is something that Ukio does together, right? It's not when we put on a meet, it's not Jaren, it's not Chelsea, it's not just singular or like a group of people, it's like Ukio's putting it on, right? So when they see all of their friends and all of their training partners volunteering and and putting in the work and like game planning and moving equipment and setting stuff up, they're like, oh, I want to, I want to be a part of that. Like, I want to do that too. You know, there's, like you said, there's so much pride that goes into doing what we do. And I end up having, yeah, a lot of people asking me like, can I, can I help out for this? Can I volunteer? Can I move stuff? Can I, you know, what, what, just tell me what to do and I'm down. Yeah. That's, that's so special, man. And I'm, I'm just so grateful for it. Even just reflecting on it now, man, it's, it's, really amazing yeah i mean to me to me it's like it's it's a twofold thing right like i think that it's the combination like we said of kind of the cultural values that that come from hawaii right like a big emphasis on community and and family that even like you said people who weren't really recent you know um weren't really recent members still feel this obligation um and, you know, that combined with, I think the example you've set really makes people, you know, want to, to take, take a role. Right. And we talked about this, you know, I, I I'll take any opportunity I can to gas up Jaron, but I, I said this at the end of the, uh, the weekend seminar that we had, it's like, you know, I think that of course you have phenomenal people in, in Hawaii and phenomenal members at Ukiyo, but I think that just seeing how selfless Jaron is when he carries himself as the meet director, as the owner of the gym, as the state chair, I think that that inspires people to to help out. Whereas if you know you're a a, a leader of something who is very you know just much more selfish or or you know expects things of people, I think that that probably turns a lot of people away. And you know you see that all over the place. I mean, I've I've dealt with or just observed and and or heard of meet directors or certain gym owners that people just have problems with and they end up having falling outs and the staff leaves and just all, you know, there's a mess of stuff that can happen. Um, you know, but, but I, I think Jaron does a, an amazing job leading, um, which is just is huge. And, you know, to touch on the meat itself. I mean, if you live in California, Washington, Oregon, Arizona, Nevada, like if you're anywhere on the West Coast, go do a meet at Ukiyo at some point. Like it's even on a, at a local level, it is one of the most like high energy competitions that I've ever been to. The only other local meet I can say that kind of matched that energy was the Warcat meet, Jaron, mm-hmm. that you and I were at yep. uh, coaching Kyle and, and David Chan. Um like especially with the the setup when it's when it's the prime time session, all the lights are off, and then you have the lights behind the platform lighting everything. It was it was nuts. And like one of your uh, one of your spotters, James, what's oh, last name? Foster, had a James, yep, brother James, had a James. Man was losing his voice doing the the chi for every lifter that came out onto the platform. Bro, and he was he spotted and loaded for. All three sessions. So we had a Saturday session, we had Sunday morning, and we had Sunday evening. And he was—he like, just wanted the shirts, man. That's all it was. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the shirts were dope. The shirts were dope. But he was like, "Bro, get me in there as much as I can. Like, I want to, I want to be in there." And it's so crazy. Like he, his energy levels were high the whole time. You know, session after session after session, man. Is 
It was awesome. He's in high school too, so he's got he's got energy, man. He's got the energy. Amazing, literally, bro. Such an amazing kid. So yeah. so awesome to have him in. Like he's the he's definitely our hype man, and like he showed it for sure this meet. I think that was like kind of a, <clears throat> a big standout role in terms of the meet. Was like, damn, James had some phenomenal energy. Yeah. Yeah. No, dude, it was a great time. I wish I wish Aiden you that you could have gotten the opportunity to see it as well. Um, it, I think it definitely would have been a, uh, it's one of those meets that you watch and you're like, I need to compete right now. Like it needs to happen. Yeah. No, I mean, I was watching the stream. I, I had someone compete, uh, at, at that meet. So, uh, you know, and I was just hearing like the energy from the live stream, just everyone screaming and, and all that. It, it looked like good blowing time. out the microphone. Yeah. Just, you know, just bass boosted. You know? <laughs> yeah. Um, do you ever plan on doing a, like, uh, like a, like that, a beach meet again? Like uh, where you guys did it outside? I would I would have to look into it a little more. And I think if we were to revisit something like that, I think our staff is a lot more experienced now. Because even mm -hmm. for me, myself, when we did that beach meet, that was my first meet as a meet director. So like difficulty level was on 10. You know, it was okay. It was probably yeah. one of the harder venues to, to set up just given the circumstances. Um, and so that was it was pretty stressful but i think if we were to do something like that in the future like we would be more prepared but i'd have to kind of look into um just making sure that we can provide the liftier experience that we we want to you know like i wouldn't okay. want to just do it knowing that we're not fully prepared for it or you know we can't put on the production that we really want to put on um so yeah i mean just kind of some some things on the back end that's that's hard to do with running a, a meet on the beach is you know obviously there's no real level platform or surface mm -hmm. yeah, to without yourself so that was actually probably the biggest thing that i was stressing about like on the day of the meet was just making sure that the the platform was completely straight so we had like six of us leveling out the platform and um you know we were bringing sand and like putting it in different areas to make sure that the wood and the platform wouldn't warp or it wouldn't shift. Um, and then also like internet and Wi-Fi is a big thing, right? Because when you're indoors, like it's no problem at all, but um, just sometimes when you're outdoors, like it, it's the reception is a bit harder or just the Wi-Fi connection is, is a bit harder. So that was something that we ran yeah. into too, where the meat had to get slowed down because uh, it was harder to get to the Wi-Fi. So, um, just kind of things on, on that end is, is something that we got to make sure that we're like 100%, we got it down, um, before we, we revisit a venue like that, but I would love to, man, we got so much positive feedback from that. And, um, a lot of people still do ask about, um, a meet on the beach, but we'll, we'll see if that's something that we can, we can execute in the future. Yeah, I mean, logistics-wise, that sounds pretty insane, and it's, it's kind of insane that you even did it in the first place, considering yeah. I, I can imagine that work was pretty tedious, um, so that's that's quite impressive, but it, it was quite the uh, beautiful sight, seeing that. Yeah, yeah, for Especially, sure. like, uh, like it, it kind of, um, it was started uh, in the day and then ended at night, so I, I can imagine the sunrise, uh, the sunset, yeah. it, it was probably pretty oh, beautiful. Oh, yeah, it was it was so beautiful, man. So, so beautiful. Yeah. And something too, honestly, like just subjectively, right? But if you're looking at an, an outdoor meet, one of the things that you can run into is what if it rains that day? 
And mm-hmm. although like the the weather is pretty stable in Hawaii, like you never know, it could just be a day that just a gloomy day, just a rainy day. And if that happens, we're kind of fucked. Honestly, there's there's not, yeah. not really much you can do. You can put a tent over it, but the floor will still flood. So, you know, we yeah. got so, so, man, we're so, so lucky and so grateful that that meet turned out how it did. And it was phenomenal, just an amazing experience all around. But it's just like, like I said, I'd want to make sure that we have everything good to go before we we revisit that just because if we have people fly down and then it gets rained out like you know i'd i'd be kicking myself bro there's no way Mm -hmm. you just set up like a a really low quality indoor meet as just like insurance you have like a a little (laughs) like like a like a six foot by four foot banner just as the backdrop against the wood slat wall you yeah. just move a, a platform there, you know, a, a, <laughs> a rack there with no actual platform and just yeah, like, all right, guys, we're That's going inside. Yeah. Sorry, guys. I know. Yeah, I know we said beach meat, but we just got to gotta do this, this last minute change. No, yeah. So we'll see, man. We'll see in the future. But it's definitely something that we get a lot of interest for. But like I said, we got to make sure that we're executing that to like our standards. So we'll see. You could have fire, dude. Like the like those like OG like untested Soviet meets, you know, <laughs> the, the Russian feds with like the fire and the metal bands just playing. You could just have just torches everywhere. It'd be great. Yeah, that would go crazy, bro. <laughs> uh, well, how was your guys' um, experience with the seminar, man? For me, that was something that I never did before because um, although I've been coaching full time for a while, I think we're going on um, three years now. Um, I never really had, I guess, um, I wouldn't say I never had opportunities, but I never actually showcased, you know, my, my own, um, approach to coaching and programming and technique analysis and meat prep and things like that. So that was really, really refreshing for me to, um, step out outside of my comfort zone for a little bit and like put my own knowledge out there. And I, I loved it way, way more than I thought I would like being in that role of, educating and just sharing my experiences was i mean i loved it i I now and i was really nervous going into it honestly um i don't know why but i think i'm I'm getting better at it but for a while like i would get so nervous every time i'm i'm doing something like public speaking so um i was pretty nervous for it but once we started i was like man this is i love this i love this you know and just the the conversations that we had for the seminar was awesome. You know, the, the periods that we had where people got to ask questions and pick our brains was so valuable um, for me as a coach and then just me as someone who's trying to take everything all in. So um, how was your guys' experience? Um, I, I mean, I really enjoyed it. Um, I, I wouldn't, I, I was a little nervous, yeah. Um, but I, I think I just get like over... Uh, over uh, overly worried about making uh, sure that everything sounds perfect and exactly the way I want it to sound um, when I, I'm you know doing something like this. But uh, the previous seminar that we did in in Texas, um, I had uh, you know I did I did present there. Uh, I was part of the seminar, but we only did the the practical sumo demonstration uh, on both days. I, I didn't really um, give a full lecture. Um, just the demonstration of, um, you know, how to sumo deadlift essentially. Um, so this time, um, my, my topic was, um, 
essentially troubleshooting programming when um, something goes wrong and uh, you know how to identify what what is going wrong uh, and then how to uh, address it appropriately based on that issue and um, which is a which is a topic you know that that is definitely very important and something I'm, I'm passionate about that's like one of my favorite things about coaching is the problem solving aspect so um, and so it does, you know, help that I'm presenting on something I'm very passionate on. Um, and we were, we were planning for the, that lecture to be around an hour, but it, I believe it ended up being over two hours. Um, so not what I was expecting, but um, I definitely enjoyed it. And I felt like um, giving that lecture was kind of like the culmination of all my experience coaching thus far um and, and really just expelling that knowledge out there uh to you know those and, and and you know helps that it was to an audience that is uh you know passionate about improving uh you know their service or um you know potential athletes looking to uh, um have some takeaways yeah i mean so, i i first want to just you know Michael's not here, so I can't show him praise, but i'll I'll do it anyway i mean I want to show praise to to these two bright men on this uh on this podcast because they both gave phenomenal presentations so to give you guys an idea um the topics like aiden said was basically you know troubleshooting and problem solving programming when things are not going as expected um and then jaron's topic was essentially like how to come up with a meat prep like how are you going to actually construct a meat prep and then carry someone through with it and i feel like these are two areas that are so perfectly tailored to these two coaches because you know and i've said this on social media like you know uh, i'll start with aiden first i mean aiden is probably one of the more you know meticulous coaches that i've seen when it comes to problem solving and i think that you know for anyone listening who is a coach it's like you have to have the sound understanding of the fundamentals first. And then it's just a matter of like being confident in, in, in being patient in terms of like making incremental changes, controlling the variables, you know, have to be controlled and then changing the variables you suspect to drive someone in a positive direction. So it's like when you're very, you know, meticulous and aware that, okay, I'm not changing too many things at once and I'm trusting the direction I want to go in. Then as you like kind of traverse your way through a block or series of blocks, you know, if something goes wrong, then you can just like lean back on your fundamentals and, and figure out what you need to change from there. And I mean, Aiden's exactly right when he says it's like the culmination of his coaching experience, because, you know, there were so many case studies in his presentation that just hammered away at so many different principles, whether it was, you know, um, so for, for people listening who are coaches, like you know, the, the concept of using like uh, primer sets or, or just like pushing peak intensity on a, on a secondary session to get better performance on a primary session or, you know, just recognizing when to, you know, increase or decrease frequency, just like all of these things that I think every coach will, you know, every coach will run into a problem that necessitates one of these strategies. And what separates good coaches from great coaches is, knowing exactly like how to course correct and like of all the options that you have available to you how do we course correct quickly and you know one of the examples that Aiden gave with his lifter coda i mean the so he had like his his presentation up on screen and it was like the the spreadsheets and just the the filled out weights that the lifter was hitting 
and he was just having just regression across weeks where he just felt weaker on squat. And there was one change that Aiden made by way of, you know, giving like this quote unquote primer set on that secondary day. And literally in two, three weeks time, like just back at all time bests and, and excelled past his all time bests, all with changes like that. And, you know, it's, it it was very impressive work. Um, He was incredibly thorough. Like that was one of the things that, you know, I, I loved about your presentation, Aiden. Like when I was sitting there, it was, there was never not an opportunity to learn, you know, and like there were, cause you can kind of belabor a point and, and be like, okay, like, you know, it, you've already discussed this. We're just kind of simplifying it or bringing it full circle. But it was like, no, like every, every series of slides, it was a new principle. We bring up a new principle we bring up. So I'm, I'm sure everyone watching was really happy about that. I mean, we had what we had a kid, Darren fly in from, from California who's originally from Taiwan, um, you know, for the seminar and just the group of Hawaii coaches out there, uh, you know, Noah Johnson, Primar, um, who else was there? Yep. Randall, Shelly. Yeah, dude, it was, you guys have a lot of really bright, you know, bright lifters, bright coaches over there who I think are gonna, you know, because obviously the the community keeps growing over there and you know everyone needs coaches and and seeing the 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 turnout at the seminar as well as just seeing like the the way that those coaches conducted themselves handling lifters at your meet I'm I'm very hopeful and and excited to see you know what you guys churn out over there yeah absolutely absolutely I mean yeah just the engagement that we had too and the questions that they were asking it was just it was phenomenal, man. I feel like a lot of people had a lot of great takeaways, um, especially from your guys' deadlift demonstration as well. Like the following week, like everyone was coming up to me and they were like, oh shit, I learned how to deadlift now. Shit's flying. <laughs> you know, so that was awesome, man. Um, energy was great. And um, yeah, I, I would really, really love to, to do something like that again in the future. Yeah. Yeah. And then Jaron, with your presentation, I mean, this is so... Something I've changed, like I get asked this question a lot, like, oh, like what's a training concept you've changed your mind on in recent years? And I would say the two that come to mind that are like like pretty big changes um, are one, I've already think I've talked about this either with you guys or on a podcast before, but one is bench frequency because I've had a couple people who have seen a lot of success coming back down kind of after the boom of pushing bench frequency in the past decade because Obviously, it was taboo at one point to even train every lift more than once a week, and then it got to twice a week. And now it's—I would say most people are benching like four times a week. I would say that's probably like the average a a seasoned powerlifter is benching. But that's one thing that I've changed my mind on. And then the second one is block length, um, because for for a while, like I was pretty much not necessarily of the persuasion of of indefinite block lengths, but like if something wasn't broken, I wouldn't fix it kind of thing. And if someone could continue to push, then we'd continue to push. But especially with a lot of stronger lifters, I've definitely found in probably the past year, year and a half, both through Jaron's influence, uh, guys like Marcellus, Steve, um, that being more proactive with, with resetting and trying to just like maintain momentum over a series of blocks rather than trying to like get everything you can out of one, um, 
and just pacing things appropriately has been a, a huge one. Like, you know, seeing how you pace things for guys like Sean Jin or guys like Kevin DeLeon or Kyle DeLeon, guys like Soul, um, even some of your female lifters who obviously it's a little bit different, but regardless, just seeing how you pace things. And for anyone listening, who's like watched some of his lifters, like you'll see, you know, Sean Jin open a block at like 518 pounds on a squat single and then go into a meet and squat 660. You're like, how did he do that? Right. And I don't think that if you were coming from a point of like no baseline, that that would be doable. I think you kind of would have had to have, you know, momentum coming out of a previous period of training, but like the fact that it is so, you know, well timed out and just like this ride into comp um, is something I've seen you do something I've seen Marcellus do. Um, and it, it, it's definitely something that's especially for some stronger guys, especially for some guys who, you know, once they hit an RP nine, it's kind of game over for them. It, it's gotten me to, to, to change how I approach, you know, preps and, and uh, you know, just zooming out and planning the, the training year Um you know, one of the guys that I gave the presentation on, Cole Wagner, he's one of my 90 kilo guys. Um, we do three week blocks, which is probably the shortest. Like, I don't, I don't know how you could even do like a two week block. I don't know of anyone who does that, but like do a three week block for all three lifts. And then just like looking at the calendar for Nats, it's like, okay, we can push to like true RP tens and then we'll have to deload. And then we have to plan out those three week blocks with wave loads. And it's, it's cool. Like it's, it's, it's a more, it's a, it's a newer, like more exciting part of, of programming that I think is, you know, becoming part of the meta of coaching, which is, you know, the pacing of things. Um, because I think previously the, the, I guess standard of practice was either like, okay, you start a meet prep X number of weeks out and just like linearly ramp up into comp for some predetermined length of time, which could be, you know, eight weeks, 10 weeks, 12 weeks, or you just have some sort of like block periodization where you just shift from one way of training into another into comp. And I think that's kind of changed where people are just like, you know, you, you might be a lifter who, you know, takes their heaviest lifts a block out and then it's like the re ramp up into comp. And it's like, that's a, to me, that's really cool to watch play out because it's not the traditional, okay, we overreach taper style of training, or it's not, okay, we, you know, take our heaviest lifts, uh, a week out and then we reduce volume a little bit the week of and then peak it's like no this is like a whole new way of pacing that you're kind of relying on on how predictable and how much you've mastered your understanding of a lifter's training where it's like no like i know that we have two six-week periods where we can ramp up and then the lifter's dead so we do that you know 24 weeks out deload and then like do that same thing again and i promise you week six is going to be good like it's just it's going to happen and it and it does, you know, if you have an understanding like that. So just seeing how you how you mapped it out for some of your guys who just like they they get that Yamane peak as <laughs> as as has been coined, you know, the the Yamane peak never fails. Um no, I loved it, man. I, I learned a lot from you guys, which is just it's awesome. Like that's that's my goal. I wanna I wanna be able to learn from you guys, you know? Yeah, for sure, man. And kind of touching bases on something that you mentioned too, like a few years ago or, you know, back in like 2018, I think there was kind of like this idea of you want to push your prep really hard. And like you would see guys take their opener like the week before the meet and they're fucking grinding it out. I think it was like Ryan Doris had a, had a post on it. And it's like 
he grinded out his opener and then you know on on meet day like he gets this crazy super compensation and like he smokes that same weight um and that's kind of how i would approach my meat preps when i first started coaching you know it's like they it's kind of like they build up a crazy amount of fatigue and this top end's kind of masked and then we pull back hard and they perform well on meat day whereas now my approach is definitely a lot different like if i had kyle grinding out his his squat opener i'd be like oh shit bro we i think we did something wrong here just it's just a very different way of approaching a meat prep where we're not just trying to hammer him into the floor where you know 90% moves at like a rp nine and a half it's like now my approach to prepping these lifters for their competition is like we want to make sure we keep momentum high confidence high and bar speed moving fast and knowing that leading into the meet they have a lot more on meet day you know not necessarily too much leaning on the side of like going into the meet we're kind of just hey we got to trust it we we don't know how exactly how it's going to go but like you know let's just uh let's let's hope for the best but and i know it's 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 more complicated than that but you know uh just going back to it like yeah Kyle would never be grinding out an opener like a week out you know so yeah. it's a completely different completely opposite way of approaching a meat prep so. yeah now nah, dude i had i had my fair share of meat preps that were intentionally designed in that way and i think it takes it takes a a special type of lifter to be able to tolerate that both physically and mentally like first of all you have to not snap which there are certainly people who went through that way of training and uh, did not make it out on the other side. You know, like guys like Lane Norton, to to name one, for example, definitely, you know, sold his soul for the the performances that he got out of his career. And you know, I'm sure he doesn't regret it. But it was a lot, you know. And and like that was the that was the meta in 2014, 2015, even into 2016. Like that Ryan Doris post you're alluding to. It was uh, going into Nationals 2015, I think, where it was a week out. And he squatted like 600 at RP 10, like truly one of the worst grinds I've seen someone hit in prep for comp. And then he hit, I think it was either 633 or 644 on meet day at like nine. And, you know, not only does it take the physical durability, but it's like you have to, you almost have to try it once for you to even like be able to make it through because yeah, you have to believe in it and no one's going to believe in it unless it works. Right. Like the first time you go through it, you you're going to, there's no shot. You're going to trust it. Yeah. Like maybe you believe in your coach, but like, you're going to have your doubts. And then if it works, then you're like, okay, we can do this, you know? Um, but it's just not, it, it's not doable for a lot of people. You know, it's like, maybe it worked well because you would periodize more harshly where like, you know, further out from comp, like you had the DUP structure, but maybe you were doing like nine, sevens and fives. And then going into comp, you're doing like sixes, fours and twos. So it's like you could bury yourself, but along with burying yourself with overall workload, you're also readapting to these higher intensities. So it's like performance is getting masked, but then you're also like just able to express more strength than maybe you could when you were doing the high rep stuff. So it was like, you know, it, it definitely would not be a, uh, a viable strategy for most people these days. But I, I definitely remember it was uh 2018 Nats actually where I squatted 639. Like a week out, I grinded 584. And that was my opener, like RP9. And I was like, oh, well, it, uh, squat always shows up. We're going to be good. <laughs> yeah. I remember um, 
man, this was 2019 Collegiate Nationals. This was like our first, um, I think it was our second meet prep together when you were uh, yep. when you were coaching me, but it was our first like Nationals meet prep. And I don't know if you remember this, but I failed my deadlift opener um, a week out. And I was like, bro, I was fucking heartbroken. I was like, oh my God, <laughs> what the fuck is going to, like, I don't know, you know, fuck it. Let's just, let's just go through with it. And I ended up performing incredibly well on meet day. Like I, I hit an all-time PR, but um, yeah, it's just kind of funny thinking, thinking back to, to that approach, but I trusted it. I was like, Hey man, I trust Sean. I trust the work that we've done. And like, I know it's going to show up, but it was definitely, it was, it, it hit my confidence for sure, man. Yeah. I mean, I remember, I remember some of your preps, just like thinking about how I wrote it out. I mean, I definitely had you overreaching, but we'd also start the taper a bit earlier from what I remember. Mm -hmm. um, so like that was that was also standard practice back then where it's like maybe you would overreach at like that three week out mark yep. and two weeks out, you'd feel pretty bad. But at that two week out mark, you might be doing, you know, 40 percent less volume than what you were doing the previous week. So it's like you did overreach, but maybe your taper ran a bit longer. So it would be intensity coming up, volume going down in that last like two week out point. Um, and then the week of obviously is a bigger reduction. Whereas now it's just like kind of pretty static going into comp volume wise and rep range wise most of the time. Yeah. Um, but yeah, with, with Jaron, like you could have failed like your last warm up on meet day and I'd still think you'd have a good meet. Like you, Jaron, yeah. Jaron always peaked. Jaron always peaked. He was a, for anyone who's only met him in the past two years, Jaron was a, was a big boy. When I handled him at, at Collegiates, he cut from what, like 215 to 205? Yep. yep. Man was busting out of that Hawaii singlet. Busting out of the singlet, fucking threw up in the warm-up room. Like <laughs> so so Jaron, so every time for 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 the listeners here, every time Jaron competes, he won't really feel like he's gonna have a good meet unless he throws up. Yep. Like that's just, that's the rite of passage. And I just remember him taking like his last warm up on squat. And I can't remember if you were about to take it or if you were re-racking it, but I just remember you like flicking your belt and then just like projectile vomiting into the garbage right behind you. Yep. No, yeah, it was, it was my last warm up, and I walked it out and I was like, I tried to brace and I was like, yeah, this is not happening. I racked it. I ran to the, to the, uh, to the trash can. I threw up and I was like, Oh, I feel fucking amazing now, man. It's gonna be a great day. And I lashed it back up, smoked the last opener, and I was like, "Bro, we're on." We're, we're Dude, he, yeah, he he throws up, and he's like, "We're ready to go, man. We're gonna have a great day today." <laughs> and then what did you? Was that your first five hundred one squat? That was yeah. It was, was four ninety six. Four ninety six. It might have been four ninety six, but it was my first four reds. Yeah, it was. Yeah, I think it was four ninety six. You benched four hundred two for the first time in comp. Yeah. And, and then what did you pull like 523? It might have been low I think it was low fives. Like that was when my deadlift was just starting to 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 hit its stride so or make some make some progress. So yeah, it was like yeah. low 500s. Yeah. But that Man. that peak did it went crazy, bro. I got like 10 keys out of uh 10 keys on bench out of that peak. Like, oh yeah. Yeah. Dude. Yeah, no. <laughs> people listening, it's I, I'd rather be in, in, in Jaren's shoes with this. Like every every meet, you could guarantee that he was going to lift more on the platform than he did in the gym. Like no question. And then obviously there are plenty of people who, you know, regardless of what you do 
to to taper to peak like your gym bests are going to be the best or maybe if you know on bench you you cut a little bit your gym best might be might be over what your your meat best could be but yeah for jaron it was always fun you just had to let jaron know like five minutes before you actually wanted him to take a warm-up that he needed to take a warm-up because there is nobody who moves more on his own time than jaron <laughs> like it'd be like all right jaron like the flight's going to be starting in two minutes so i need you to take your last warm-up and then like by the time he was under the bar to take his last warm up, and there were five lifters to go, it was like two lifters into the the flight already. It's like, yeah, yeah. Oh man, as someone who like was mega peaking like that, uh, like ten kg peak on bench is crazy. Yeah. Um, how were you like physically feeling during these preps? Were you just coming into your days just feeling like absolutely decimated, or or was it like a true like I just felt like a Superman on meet day? Yeah, it was it was it was kind of a give and take. I would say in the last few weeks leading into it, I'd feel pretty beat. Um, and I remember that prep specifically. I was like, "Damn, I feel I feel smoked." Like I felt, yeah. I felt my deadlift opener. So you know, I wasn't feeling <laughs> hot. But yeah, um, I, I would say fatigue was always pretty high. But um, I just always trusted Sean. I was like, "Bro, yeah. like you know." trusting everything that you have and like i know it's gonna we're gonna do well on meet day so i think my last yeah it was either 10 or seven and a half kilos for for that bench peak like my last heavy single was like 380 or maybe 385 a week out and then on on meet day we benched 402 so yeah that was definitely see, see yeah um so yeah i guess if you if you are someone who does mega peak like that um you just kind of have to trust the training and, and understand like uh, I'm still, you know, despite feeling terrible, you know, I, I'm still able to hit these, uh, you know, relatively, you know, heavy weights still able to, uh, you know, get in productive training uh, other than failing your deadlift opener. That's not particularly <laughs> ideal, but, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. you know, so you're, you are just going to show up, uh, you know, when you actually do feel fresh and uh, when, you know, you're peaked. Yeah. Yeah. I have, no, go ahead. No, go ahead, Jaron. No, I was going to say that I definitely drew a lot of, in terms of like the way that I peak my lifters now, I drew a lot of influence and inspiration from that, I think, knowing that like <laughs> there were preps that I, you know, didn't, you know, things didn't go well the last week of, of my meet prep, but like just instilling that trust in my lifters too, that like the plan will work and we don't have to, like in the case of bench, right? We don't necessarily have to empty the tank for some of my lifters or squat, bench, deadlift, doesn't matter. We don't have to empty the tank in the gym. Like we can leave a lot more for meet day, knowing that it's going to mm -hmm. show up. And like, that was kind of my approach when I first started coaching and, and over the years, like it's definitely, I've built more confidence in that. And obviously I've tweaked and fine-tuned a lot of things, but even just, you know, for some of my lifters, like talking about Kyle again, when he benched 463, um, which was an American record at, at the Arnold, um, we had set caps for him pretty much six weeks out for like how each week was going to go. And I remember for his last heavy, uh, his last heavy single of bench, like we were talking about 440, 446. And I was like, trust me, man, we have so many blocks, you know, under our belts where we know that you're your bench is going to show up on the last week and we can take big jumps week to week. Um, so we capped him at 440. So that's actually another case where 
he outperformed his best um, his best meat prep bench single by by ten keys on meat day. So last heavy single was four forty, and he benched four sixty three on on meat day. But um, yeah, just kind of having years of, of confidence in this approach. Um, it's something that I went through, and then something that I can implement with my lifters too. Yeah, that is uh, that is that is something that I definitely got out of your. Uh, presentation, uh, you know, between Kyle and Shelly, I was just kind of astounded at, you know, how little they really do. Yeah. Um, yeah. Like, uh, it's, it, you know, people say less is more, but I was, I was like, even that, um, you know, considering the, the strength of those lifters, you'd think, um, you know, they, they'd be doing more than that or, um, uh, you know, just for, um, a little bit of background there, there's have very like low set counts and the programming is relatively just pretty easy, you know, from what I, I, I saw just pretty low RP for both of them. Um, and that's just what they respond better to. Um, so sometimes less can be more. Um, and yeah, those are two great sure. examples. Yeah. Yeah. And for Kyle, like one of his bench days is capped at like two fifty three, and like we ramp it up yeah. throughout the block to like two seventy, maybe on like the last week. And for someone who benches four sixty, like doing, that's literally two seven, seven, yeah. Yeah, three by seven with like 250 is most people you would think that like you wouldn't even get anything out of it you know but for kyle mm -hmm. that's just a day for him to get more reps in and um really just get a day of practice and technique refinement um leading into his primary bench day but yeah it's kind of funny like he, he just told me a couple weeks a couple months ago that sometimes for that bench day he just goes from like the bar to like his top set and he'll just do a two two by seven there uh, yeah, if we can if we can take a one warm up before the top set, that would be good. But um, yeah, it's, it's yeah, just very interesting. Like some of the the approaches that we found over the years that just works best for him. Yeah, I think that really stems from you know I, I think I said this to you guys at the at the seminar is that you know I heard a coach when I was at collegiate nationals, Chris Chris Pappen, just a a friend of mine. He's in uh, he's in Michigan was like, you know, I think that we saw this big boom of of training outcomes and performances, obviously in big part by the talent pool improving for powerlifting, but two, because this better understanding of training came about where higher frequencies were implemented, DUP became the norm. And that's why you saw just like younger, smaller lifters just hitting these ridiculous numbers, right? And a lot of the principles that you learn through the higher frequency style of training, right? Like the way that training is set up nowadays where you do each lift multiple times a week. Sometimes you train the same skill set, both sessions or all sessions. Sometimes you train completely different skill sets. Sometimes the disparity is wider or bigger, right? Like you might have a lifter who's doing like eights one day and triples one day, whereas another lifter might have a smaller disparity and it's like sixes and fives. Mm -hmm. Some lifters might need more intensity or less. Like there's all these things that you only learned through powerlifting heading in that direction, right? Where the lifts are higher frequency, you know, you can train multiple skill sets that you otherwise would not have learned when you were training each lift once a week, or you were like, we're training this specific skill set for this period of time and this specific, specific skill set for this period of time. You never really knew what was optimal because you had to like wait to phase out of a previous phase of training to see what you could even accomplish, right? And the point that I'm getting to is that through all of that, we learned a lot of the principles that govern our problem solving skills. Now, the issue though, is that with what we found with like a lot of stronger guys, a lot of bigger guys is that 
applying the four sets, five sets, six sets per session that was deemed reasonable in the past because it was either being done through, you know, um, I'm muting you, Jaren. I got it. There we go. <laughs> um, that was either being done because, you know, it, it, the, the pool of lifters you were working with were maybe weaker and they could handle the more volume or, you know, you were doing this primarily with smaller lifters. It's like, you know, we've kind of realized that less is more and what you're seeing with guys like Ashton, guys like Bob, guys like Petrie, guys like Kyle, guys like Sean Jin, it's like you can apply those same problem solving skills and overarching structures to a lower set count or lower volume approach. And that is like the, the final piece. Right. It's like the 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 template that you would look at for like a a DUP model might have been like a three by nine one day and then like a five by three another day and then like a four by five another day. And it's like, okay, that's gonna crush somebody, you know, trying to, you know, squat maybe seven hundred pounds who's on a three day a week structure. But maybe that lifter does, you know, one set of nine and then like a big back down, and then they do like three sets of three, and then they do like three sets of five, and it's like you've now applied the principles of periodization and then your problem solving skills to monitor performance to a lower volume model. And then it's like, Oh, there's the momentum that we were looking for all this time. It was just getting masked by doing all this ineffective work or beating somebody up to a point that they just can't perform, you know? So. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, I can before, myself now. We don't have the fucking, the before 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 we wrap this up, I want to talk about our sushi experience because so so one of my big passions is is fine dining specifically like I love going to sushi restaurants and and going to to omakases and I've been to tons of them and I wanted to make you know part of this trip I wanted to take all of the coaches to a restaurant that I've been meaning to try for a while called Sushi Ginza Onodera which is a uh, a sushi restaurant in Honolulu. I want to know what you guys thought about it and then I want to I want to talk about a, a funny story of of me sitting next to Aiden during the course of the night, but I'm curious what you guys thought because for both of you guys, you know, Michael's not on this. Michael is also a, a big a big omakase person, but I'm curious what you guys thought of it with it being your first time. Yeah, for sure, um, man. I mean, I would say for me, like the quality of the of the otoro and then of the I think it was the salmon was just like phenomenal, bro. Like those were my top two pieces or top two um courses for sure of that omakase. It was literally like the the fish just like melted in your mouth. It was it was amazing. But like the whole experience was I mean very unique in terms of I, I don't, I've only been to that was my second omakase. First one was with you in Texas. Um, true. But it's just, it's a, it's a really awesome dining experience because it's a lot more intimate than like a regular dinner would be. Like they just bring out one course at a time and there's really like, they give you time to just appreciate it, like fully digest it and fully like just soak everything in. And then once you're ready for that, then they bring out the next one, but it's just all small platters. So, you know, it's, you're getting a bunch of different flavor profiles, you know, one after the next. A lot of different textures, but I loved it, man. And then being able to do it with you guys was was awesome, you know. And I had Sean on my right side, Michael on my left side, you know, asking what they think, and they're like, they're they're uh, sushi connoisseurs. 
<laughs> uh, uh, I'd say it's definitely an improvement from my uh, Mike Isratel diet. <laughs> <laughs> the Kraft yeah. singles and protein bar diet. Yeah, or like the dry chicken with a pickle on the side. <laughs> <laughs> um, I thought it was it was an awesome experience. Um, you know, the food was fantastic. You know, we were in like this uh, very cool, like traditional Japanese style room. Uh, which was just like a, just very um, just a great environment. I don't know. It's just it was just aesthetically pleasing. Um, and um, you know, we we had uh, what was the place that we went to prior in Texas? Uh, Uchi, I believe. Okay. Uchi, yeah, right? I've only ever had like um, like you know roll sushi. And so these are my only two experiences with, I don't know, I guess, real sushi. Um, and, um, you know, the, the flavors are just uh, very, very intense, I would say. Uh, for, for example, like, just, uh, I, I don't know what in particular, but it was maybe like the squid or something or the eel. It just, just very intense flavors. Um, I, I think it was the squid that I was like, was I was like... Squid. You like yeah, that? The, was, yeah, you like the squid. That it, it was like a, an electrifying flavor. It was like as if there was like a there was like a voltage, you know, an explosion inside uh, my uh, my mouth at the moment. At that that's particular a, that's time, that's a soundbite of the podcast, right there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I tried to, I tried to, you know, I, I tried to make that sound as. Boy, um, what the hell? Yeah. <laughs> it's, that sounded pretty sus, but. <laughs> I mean, that's we'll what it was. It we'll let it pass. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So the, the, the restaurant is just like the, the traditional aesthetic is just like the 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 tabletops are like a very light wood i can't remember exactly what kind of wood the cabinets are this light wood and maybe they're just like open sort of cubicles housing sake bottles or or containers for the rice or you know knives so it's just like very you walk in there and it immediately just like lowers your blood pressure like you just feel like <laughs> oh yeah like i can exhale i can relax and you just become like hyper vigilant and observant of everything that's kind of around you and you're like, wow, like this is really pretty. This is really cool. And watching the chefs is, you know, watching them work is an amazing experience. Obviously, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a pretty big financial decision because a lot of these places are expensive, but if you have the the privilege to do so, I definitely recommend going at some point to, to an omakase. It's, it really is an incredible experience. And my favorite part is watching people eat because, you know, obviously I love the food, but I love seeing people try it for the first time. And so the, I'm sitting next to Aiden throughout the course of this dinner. And, you know, <laughs> Aiden overall had a positive experience. There were some things that he tried he wasn't the hugest fan of, which I totally understand. Surprisingly, the two that I thought he wouldn't like, he liked the most, which was the squid and the uni. Those are usually two tastes and textures people don't like. But the thing I didn't know about Aiden before this trip is like he doesn't really like knowing that he's eating animals. And <clears throat> so he's eating the fish and it's like, you know, if there's slices of fish, it's like, okay, like this is far enough removed that it just – it's food, right? It doesn't look characteristic of an animal. But then we had firefly squid, which is like a spring delicacy. 
you know, you can only get it in the springtime, which they're really, really tiny. They just look like squids. They're not taken apart by any means. It's just the whole, the whole animal. And that kind of turned them off a little bit. But the thing that was so funny about this dinner is this is the first time I've ever been to an omakase where there was like a, a, a waitress or an attendee or like showing you pictures of the thing. <laughs> so she would come up to us and it was only us. I feel like they didn't even do it to Michael and Jaron. I think it was because they knew that I was into it. So they kept showing me, yep. but they would come up to me and Aiden with <laughs> with an iPad or a tablet with pictures <laughs> of the dead fish in like the most unflattering, <laughs> most unflattering picture as Aiden is trying to distract himself from the fact that these were once animals. And I just remember that we got the Noroguro, which is a black throat sea perch. It's like one of the best fish. It's, it's so good. But <laughs> the woman comes over and by this point, it's like the 10th fish that Aiden's been shown that he's like, please get this out of my face. So he's already trying to ignore them. And the woman just comes over and she's like, black throat sea perch. Look, its throat is black. And you're just like looking <laughs> down the throat of this dead fish. And Aiden's like, oh, great. Thanks. <laughs> yeah. Losing I'm just, I'm my just... mind. Trying to look away as she's just showing me the like the back of this fish's throat, and I'm like, yeah, that's just exactly what I needed right now. You needed that the black throat tussy, bro. <laughs> <laughs> Give me that fish. Yeah. <laughs> Give me that fish. <laughs> like, wow. I w- sure was wondering how it got its name. <laughs> I never yeah. could have guessed. Yeah. Oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> oh man its throat is really black wow <laughs> the exploding hog head emoji yeah um, <laughs> kids grandpa died <gasps> oh no that was that was not exactly making uh the experience it, it was because I, I was just trying you know i was like oh wow uh, a new place coming out i can't wait to try this flavor and then i i just it would mess me up i, just, I, I couldn't yeah. focus on the uh the, the fish just too focused on the throat. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's just it was just occupying my mind. Oh man, yeah, we we definitely. So there's another restaurant in Hawaii that I've been told is from someone who's a very seasoned sushi eater is the best omakase he's ever been to. So the next time that we go to Hawaii, maybe in, in you know fingers crossed in January, we'll have to take the uh, the trip there, but. Yeah, do you guys do you guys have anything to add about the uh the trip? I definitely I will say I definitely would like the next time I come to just fly to the other islands because I have heard right that like Honolulu is definitely the most like urbanized, commercialized part of Hawaii as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If you were to go to Maui or Kauai or Big Island, um, it's definitely I mean the beaches are beautiful there, hikes are beautiful, so and I know that that was something that Aiden was missing out on this trip too. Like he wanted to go on a hike or go to the beach, but didn't get a chance to. So for sure next time, I mean, I'd be down to, to go to one of the, the outer islands as well. Just take yeah. an actual like vacation. You know, yeah. Just so good. Dude, I almost. In the, the, the nature. I almost booked the flight to the wrong island. Like I was literally about to, to book my flight. And then I was just talking to Michael and I was like, oh, we're flying into Big Island, right? He's like, nope, it's in Honolulu. Like I was like seconds away from pressing that flight to, you know, paying however much it was. And I think it was a more expensive flight, if I remember correctly. So I'm glad that I didn't. But uh, 
yeah, next time for sure. Yep. Yep. For sure. Man. Yeah. yeah I'll, be, I'll be probably coming back. Yeah. Yeah. But even like the, you know, from that, trip, like, or from when you guys visited, like some of my favorite moments were literally just us just hanging out, you know, like Aiden and I on a Sunday night, just fucking laying on the couch, like programming. And, you know, he was like, yeah, there was like, like a picture. What are you doing here, man? Like, how'd you, what are you doing? And like, Chelsea got a picture of us like snuggled up on the couch. Like, just, yeah. Oh. I'm just like breathing down his throat. Like, <laughs> like looking at him program like oh what do you got here yeah, um yeah just like i mean yeah borderline looks like we're cuddling but uh <laughs> and then i don't know yeah it was, th- those were the best times because i didn't really get to enjoy hawaii itself but uh you know i do like miss all the good times that we had together and you know all the all the uh times with with the community at yukio um as well um so you know i didn't get to i am quite the nature enjoyer if you will i like i like uh being at one with the world and uh you know going on hikes and seeing sights um and embracing so really your melancholic to, solitude yeah embracing my melancholic solitude at the at the top <laughs> of uh you know some sort of hike um as i look off into the distance majestically but um I didn't really get to experience any of that, but I, I did, uh, you know, I'm totally hundred percent satisfied with this trip just because of, you know, the times that, you know, we all, we all had. Maybe the Hawaii trip was just the friends you made on the way. That, that is, that is a hundred percent true. It is one of the trips of all time. It was a trip of all time. <laughs> <laughs> all right, guys, I've, I've really enjoyed this. I think we're going to wrap this one up here. Jaron has to open the gym uh our time right now it's it's 5 p.m eastern 4 p.m central and what is it 11 a.m hawaii time so yep we're gonna we're gonna part now but this was uh this was a good one guys thank you to everyone who tuned in and listened you'll definitely get a uh, if you made it this far you definitely got a good mixture of of informative content and then us just being goons so thank you guys so much for listening to episode 19 of the high bar podcast thank you aiden and jaron for taking time out of your day and i will see you guys in the next one take care